message was given at Hope Church of Knoxville. For more information about Hope Church, please visit our website at hopeknox.com. We're good at detours around here. Um, you guys remember I told you what is October 31st, 1517? Anybody remember what that, why that date is significant? Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the Pope's door. And we're going to learn a little bit. We're going to take uh, the next three weeks, Jeremy and I are both going to rotate in on this, and we're just going to talk about the Reformation, why it's significant. Um, we're, off, we're going to obviously spend our time in Scripture, but I want to educate everyone here on, on these incredible men and why we should all be challenged by them, why they challenge me, why they challenge Jeremy and many others. But we want to spend our time and, and devotion here in Scripture and find a place that heavily influenced Martin Luther and actually was a passage that was key in his life. And one of the things that he did was remind the church that salvation is by faith alone apart from works. And we're going to go to a key passage for that. So if you guys will turn with me to Romans 3. I'll give you guys a few seconds to turn there. We're going to be reading from 21 all the way down to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be the justifier and the one, uh, He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to come today and celebrate what you have done throughout church history. We, we're excited about the fact that we're coming upon this time and that we can remind ourselves that you were active, that you created and that you brought a revival to the church in the 1600s, and we celebrate that fact. And we pray and long for a revival like that today, not only in our church, but churches across America, that we will return to salvation by faith alone, that we will return to Scripture, and that we will develop a passion to make the nations know your name and worship your name. Be with us now as we come to this passage. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear from it. May we love Christ more because of this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, this is a tough passage. The reason this is a tough passage is a lot of the words we're not really acquainted with. We don't use words like propitiation on a regular basis. Um, we don't talk about righteousness uh, and the different meanings of righteousness on a regular basis. These are not things that come up in our normal language. But... They're very important. I think today from our passage, we're going to see why they're important. But in order to understand them, I think Martin Luther is very helpful here for us. Martin Luther was a 16th century German monk. Um, he uh, Initially growing up, his parents wanted him to be a lawyer. I remember as a child, my parents wanted me to be a lawyer. Um, I love debating, so I guess it kind of goes hand in hand. So um, my my. His parents wanted him to be a lawyer. He started going to school to be a lawyer, and then all of a sudden he decided this is not for me, and he drops out of school. 
uh, which angers his father very much. He said he wanted to study religion, even though he was not a believer at the time. He wanted to study religion because he felt like that was objective, and lawyer and, and, and studying the law was in no way helpful to him. It wasn't something that he could wrap his hands around, something he could devote his life to. So he enrolled in an Augustinian school. Or before this, actually, let me give you a little more background. It's kind of uh, funny. He's riding on a horse one day, and a great lightning storm breaks out. And lightning's striking everywhere. And then all of a sudden, Luther's scared for his life. Um, He very much was terrified by the wrath of God. He really struggled with how can God be loving and wrathful and righteous at the same time. He looked at his life and saw all the sin in his life, and he thought, how is it possible that God could love me? And he really struggled with that. It's not a person who doesn't think about it. No, this is something he was struggling with regularly. And he was going through, uh, he was riding his horse through a storm. And then he says, he called out to the Lord, Lord, if you will save me from the storm, I will do whatever you, you want me to do. I will even devote myself to ministry. And as soon as this happens, he gets off his horse and lightning strikes right next to him. And he felt like that was the Lord calling him into ministry. So then... He enrolls into a school, it's called an Augustinian monastery, to study theology, to study God's Word. And even through this, even while studying God's Word, he still struggled with the fact, how can God love me? Look at my life. Even when I do great things, even when I flee from all the things of the world, if you think of a monk, the whole idea of a monk is we're going to leave the world and go in this small space and we're going to avoid the world at all costs because we don't want to involve ourselves with sin. We want to flee and hide from it. And even when he had all those things take place, he was still fearful that the Lord was not happy with him. I'm going to give you a quote from him. I'm going to read this here. So this is a quote about how he really struggled to understand how can God be both loving and righteous. Those two things seemed at odds with him because of his sin. He struggled with this. This is what he says, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, So no one could bring any charge against him. So I lived as a monk with no reproach. I felt as I was a sinner before God and and, and with an extreme disturbed conscience. So this really bothered him. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinners. Secretly, if not blasphemously, Certainly mumbling, murmuring, sorry, greatly, I was angry with God. He was angry with God because he didn't understand how these two things could coincide. He looked at his life, and if you think, you know, I don't have that much sin in my life, maybe you don't, but think about this. Luther considered himself blameless. All those around him considered himself blameless. And he was trying to think, how could a righteous God who cannot stand in the presence of sin love him? That's a difficult thing to wrap your mind around. Especially if you're in a Roman Catholic system that calls for constant penance. You sin and then you have to go to confession. You sin, then you have to take the Lord's Supper. You have to receive His righteousness through the Lord's Supper is what they're saying. Over and over again, he thought he never did enough. And this is one of the key passages that help him understand and help him come to terms with, how is it that God loves me? And when we come to this passage today, I think that's where we're going to find our hope as well. Verse 21, it starts off this way. But now, 
I'm going to cut off right there. It's a small phrase. What's the significance of this but now? What's the build-up to this but now? Why is he saying but now? What he's talking about is this is a new age of salvation. The Old Testament is built upon sacrifice. But now Christ has come and perfectly obeyed the law for us. This is a new age. The promised Messiah from Genesis 3.15 has now come. He's crushed the head of Satan and now set us free. And now the Spirit has come upon believers. Paul is saying, but now we're in this new age of salvation. It's not like that of the past. And we'll see that as we get into this section. So what's this new age look like? He says, the righteousness of God has been manifested. What does Paul mean by righteousness here? We don't, we don't say the word much, and I talk about how sometimes this passage will be difficult because we don't understand it. Well, there's, there's two aspects of righteousness. Think about this. God made all these promises throughout the entire Old Testament. He kept making these promises that one day He was going to deliver His people from sin. If God was going to be righteous, if He was going to be truthful, if those things about Him were to be true, then He must accomplish this. So in order for His righteousness to be true, He must redeem His people as He promised. So, His righteousness is, is actually displayed through the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ proved that everything that God said in the past was true. So that's one aspect of His righteousness. It proves the fact that everything He said was true in the past. It proves the fact that He is a good God who is going to redeem His people for those who put their faith in Him. But there's also a negative aspect of His righteousness. It shows His wrath towards sinners. And we're going to understand this, we're going to see this in a second. If you think about the Old Testament, how is, it, how is He righteous in this? Well, He judges sin. If we, if we all look back to maybe the World Trade Center or maybe we think about Hitler and we think, would God be just if He didn't punish these people who, who do these great, terrible things? Would God be just if He didn't punish sin? No, we all agree that sin deserves to be punished. These people need to stand account for the terrible things that they have done. And God is righteous because He judges sin. He's righteous because He's faithful to His Word and redeems us but He's also righteous because He judges sin. We don't want Him to ignore these things. Maybe we've had something wrong happen to us. And that's where we can put our confidence in God, just like the psalmist and saying, God, avenge me. Save me. Avenge me against those who do wrong against me. That's what all the psalms claim and proclaim over and over again. God, judge those evil ones who work against me. That's God's righteousness. So there's a negative and a positive aspect of this. And it says the righteousness of God was manifest apart from the law. What's he mean by apart from the law? He's not saying that the law is bad. It's not something that, in the law, what he means by the law is the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament. For a Jew, the Bible is divided into three parts, and it's called the Tanakh. Wanted a, another tough word to give you for this morning, but the law, uh, the scriptures are divided into three parts. First, you have the law, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. Then you have the writings, which are like Psalms, Proverbs, wisdom literature. If you want to think of it that way, um, then you have the prophets. 
So why does he say apart from the law? He's saying that the righteousness of God was made manifest apart from the law. The law being in reference to Moses and the Sinai covenant. Why does he say that it was made manifest? It was revealed. If you want to think of it that way. Why was it revealed apart from the law? Who came first? Moses or Abraham? Think about that. Because this is very significant for Paul. Galatians, this is one of his main arguments. Who came first, Moses or Abraham? God saved Abraham. Abraham was made righteous because of his faith in Christ. Then the law came after that faith in Christ. So what he's trying to say here is salvation has always been by faith alone. The law was never meant to be a means of salvation. It was always by faith. Abraham was before that, and he was justified by faith. The law was for believers. When you come to the law, God says this right before they go up on Israel. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who delivered you out of Israel. He has already delivered them. He is already their God. It was never meant to be a means of salvation. The law was for a redeemed people. And that's why it is significant he's trying to say that God's righteousness was revealed by faith apart from the law. Why does this matter for us? Why is this significant? Think about this. We all want law. Whether you, whether you would word it that way or not, we all long for the law. Think about this. When you get a syllabus in school, you know, you want to know what you're graded by. You want to know, I've got to do these things in order to pass. These are passing, so that counts. I've got to get these things done in order to pass my class with a D. Some people want A's, which is a good thing. Um, but we think these are the things I have to do. I have to do everything possible. I have to do. I have to study enough to get these grades in order that I may pass the exam. We want a law. We want a checklist to say, I've done this, therefore God loves me. I've done these things, therefore I can now live my life as I want because God loves me because I've done everything I've needed to do. We want the checklist because it's easier. When God, He doesn't call us to a checklist. He calls us to live a life faithful to Him. That's so much harder. Because you're not looking at a list and say, I've done what I've needed to do, now I pass. I've got the D, I can leave. No, He wants you to be faithful every single day. He's calling you to an obedient lifestyle. He's calling you to, to look to Him, to trust Him on a regular basis. You can't grade that. He's calling you to live faithfully to Him, to worship Him. Those are not things that you can make in a checklist. Those things can't be graded. It's a, it's a lifestyle change. It's living your life towards Christ. We all long for law, but Christ calls us to a lifestyle, not a law. Look what he says next. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Why does he say law and prophets? Remember I told you the Old Testament according to the Jew is set up into three parts. What he is saying is all of Scripture... The law, the prophets, all of the Old Testament, everything a Jew reading this would know, it all bears witness to the fact that salvation is by faith alone, apart from works. 
It's not the law that saves you. It's not obedience to the law that saves you. It's looking to Christ in faith that saves you. All of Scripture points to that. And the significance of that is how often do you hear people say, the the God of the Old Testament, He's a God of wrath. You know, the God of the New Testament, He's a God of love. No, it's always been salvation by faith. It's always been God redeems those who put their faith in Him, and He judges those who do not. All Scripture testifies of this. Next, let's see how this redemption is applied to us. Go down to verse 22 with me. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. So salvation, your righteousness, the way that you become right before God is in, imagine a courtroom setting. You walk up to the judge and you show him your long Rap sheet. You show him everything wrong that you have done. You look at your life. You have nothing to bring to him. Literally every good deed you've done, you've done by the power that he has given to you. So you come before him saying, I bring nothing to the table. This is my judgment. You come before him guilty as charged. Your only plea is a gracious judge that wouldn't give you that much of a penalty. You're hoping not for a life sentence or not the electric chair and a life sentence. We're begging for the mercy of this judge. But what happens? All those who put their faith in Christ Jesus are then declared righteous. It's as if the judge sees your long rap sheet and you tell him you have your faith in Christ, and then you are declared righteous. His righteousness then becomes your righteousness. It's an exchange. The righteous Christ comes in the room, and the innocent righteous Christ comes and takes the guilty party's punishment. And you are declared not guilty. That's the gospel, folks. We are guilty. We do deserve punishment. And Christ has taken our punishment. And because of that, we are set free. And you walk out of the courtroom a new person with a new calling. Why do we need Christ's righteousness? Look down to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. You're born into sin. Everyone is guilty. David even says in Psalm 51, From the womb I have sinned. We come to the party, and it's it's very ironic. I'll I'll talk with my family sometimes, look at my kids, and they're like, they're so great, blah, 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 or sometimes they're terrible. But they'll think of this, and um, both are true. But they'll look at our kids, and they're like, They're so innocent. But that's not true. If you put a toy in a room with one toy with all these kids, they start fighting over it. They start showing their anger. They start showing how jealous they are. They're not innocent. We're all guilty. We all need Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. Look what he says in Romans 1.18. 
So we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what happens when we have sinned? What's it look like for those who are sinners? This is what it says in Romans 1.18. Only a cha- two chapters before this, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what's that say about sinners? What's this tell us about all those who are in sin apart from Christ? God's wrath is upon us. Whenever you are not in Christ, whenever you not have been redeemed by Christ, God's wrath is placed upon you. We can't get around those things. And you shouldn't want to. That all unbelievers are under the wrath of God. And that's why they need the gospel. It's not that God, whenever you put your faith in Jesus, He ignores those things. It's not that He's ignoring sin. No, He is righteous. He has to remain faithful. He is holy. So judgment has to take place. That's why when people say, well, if God is is loving, why couldn't He just forgive sins without sending Jesus to the cross? That's an ignorant statement. He is holy. He is righteous. His wrath has to be appeased. Judgment has to take place in order for Him to be holy. And I bring up the same illustration as earlier. We wouldn't be happy if God didn't judge those who perform terrible things to great amounts of people. We'd be angry. We'd think, God, you're not righteous. You're not a loving God if you don't judge those things. Well, the fact is, they are judged. Sin is judged for all those who put their faith in Christ. It is judged at the cross. Reminds me of the question, and I wish I could devote a whole morning to this. But people all the time say, God hates the sin, but not the sinner. And I would want to say, and for more reasons than this verse, but I don't think that's a biblical response. God's wrath is upon a sinner. God judges the sinner. Sinners spend eternity in damnation if they don't put their faith in Christ. Their sin doesn't just go to hell. No, they do. That's why we need Christ's righteousness. That's why when Jesus was on the cross, God's wrath, it's not that He ignored our sins. When Jesus is on the cross, God's wrath is placed upon Jesus. That's why at the cross, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because all of God's wrath, all the sins that we have ever committed are placed upon Christ. And that's why Isaiah says, when prophesying about the coming of Christ, it pleased God to crush Him. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded for our iniquities. Because at the cross, love and justice of God meet. God doesn't ignore sin. He remains holy and just and righteous. But He also displays His love. All those things come together at the cross. It's not that He's ignoring sin. No. God's wrath is placed upon Christ because of His love for us. Christ then comes and dies. That's a difficult thing to understand. That's a painful thing to understand. That The people that you love who don't know Christ, that's why we share the gospel because we long to see them not under God's wrath but under His love. Look what He says next. 
and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption in Jesus Christ. When Martin Luther was trying to do enough to save himself, when he was trying to do enough to make God happy with him, look what Paul says. Paul says that you're justified by grace. It's a gift. You don't deserve it. It's a free gift for those who put their faith in Christ. You don't have to earn salvation. You have to put your faith in Christ. He has earned it for you. So when you're struggling, maybe you haven't done your quiet time enough throughout a week, or maybe you see someone and you didn't share the gospel with them and you feel guilty later, or maybe you feel like you haven't done enough to help these people. Yes, we should do those things. Yes, we should help the homeless. Yes, we should do these things. But remember, these things don't make you right before God. Jesus does. Find your comfort in the fact that He is your righteousness. That anything you do just puts you further in debt to Him. And that's why we proclaim our only hope is Jesus. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness, is what the great hymn writer said. Next, verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Now, this is another tough one. You know, you probably don't hanging out saying things like uh, propitiation on a regular basis. Depending on what your translation is, it may even say expiation. So now you have more tougher words, or more tough words. You've got a series of these. You've got propitiation, expiation. Do we know what these terms mean? We're not really, they're not a normal everyday language. Let me define them for you. And then I'm going to tell you, because different translations use different words. I'm going to tell you where I think the answer or the, the resolve lies in. First, propitiation. It means someone who is angry with us, angry with us in our sin, and then the wrath is satisfied. So propitiation, the whole idea is wrath being satisfied for our sins. So God is, God is infinitely wrathful because He's holy and righteous. He can't stand to be in the presence of sin. Well, propitiation, whenever... Christ becomes our propitiation, that appeases the wrath of God. Proverbs 16.14 explains it in a more of a, a simpler way for us, if you want to think of it this way. A king's wrath is a messenger of death. So a king's wrath is a messenger of death. And a wise man will appease it. So the wise man, then what, would, what does wise man do? He goes and then makes the king calm down or he appeases wrath by giving him something, a reward or something of nature to, in order to make his wrath no longer there. So propitiation is somehow or another his wrath is satisfied for our sins. And we are, we are set free because of that. Expiation. What's this word mean? Expiation means... Our sins are wiped away. It's a simple washing away of our sins. So, now, depending on what translation you have, is it propitiation or is it expiation? My answer to you is yes. It's both. God's wrath is satisfied and our sins are washed away. That's the gospel. When you put your faith in Christ, the wrath of God is satisfied and our sins are washed away. I think both are correct, but it's hard to translate that into English. And then he says this. This was to show God's righteousness.
So how does this show God's righteousness? How did the cross display God's righteousness? How does this show both aspects? The, the fact that He's wrathful and hates sin and the fact that He's faithful to fulfill His promises. Because at the cross, as I said earlier, God's wrath and His love are brought together all in one. And Christ's death then makes it possible for us to return back to Him into fellowship. Just as Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, we can now be back into the presence of God. So that's how it displays His righteousness. The cross shows us how God is faithful and how He is loving all at the same time. So when Martin Luther's struggling, how does God love me? He looks to the cross. When you struggle and wonder, does God love me? Remember, in the midst of your sin, He sends Jesus, the perfect spotless Lamb, to be slain for you. Verse 26. It was to show His righteousness at this present time so that He might be just and the justifier for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see that? He's justifying. He's both just. It means He's, he's holy. He's righteous. That, that part is not forgotten. He's not abandoning those things. He's still punishing sin because it deserves to be punished. But He's also the justifier because He sends His Son to make us right with Him. This is one of these passages that Martin Luther found peace in. He found peace because he realized he no longer needed to do all these penance in order to make himself right with God. He didn't have to go live as a monk and hide from the world just so he could save himself. He didn't have to do enough things. He didn't have to make enough to get the passing grade. Someone has already passed the test for him. He just has to show up and live a life of thankfulness because of it. Why is this important for us? If we want to see a revival in our church, like Martin Luther and the Reformation that took place, these concepts were foreign during his day. They didn't even have the Bible in their language. They would come to church and the preacher would literally preach in another language. He would preach in Latin when they spoke German. So they would come to church and they wouldn't even understand it. He translates the Bible into their language and then he reminds them and brings them back. So one of the themes that is talked about in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets testify to it. All of Scripture, every bit of it, proclaims that salvation is for those who put their faith in Christ. So the proper response to the sermon is, are you putting your faith in the finished work of Christ? Do these theological terms matter? Yes. We don't want to just pass over them. There's a lot of rich truth in there. You can learn why God loves you because of this. You can learn how God is holy and just because of this. This is where our hope is. If we want to see a revival in our church, let's have gospel-centered lives, gospel-centered marriages. Let's display through our life these great truths. That's when we're going to see a revival and we start proclaiming these great truths that God has reconciled the sinner through Christ at the cross and all those who put their faith in Him will be redeemed.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for...